you join me in our scripture reading, it would be Matthew 14, 22 to 23. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, he went on to the mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. This is the word of God. As I was reflecting on uh, the new year, I was reflecting on 2021, I was reminded of just looking at my watch, I was like, oh, it's January 6th. January 6th, 2021 was a very interesting day. It's one of those remember where you were when days and the news was all kinds of crazy stuff was happening and uh, definitely a day that I think represents a lot of chaos and anxiety and fear. Um, and I think back to 2020, uh, that was the year that, you know, we always say it was the worst year ever. Um, I think 2021 maybe was one of the most, this is my perspective, and maybe it's because we had a new baby, I don't know, but one of the most exhausting years ever uh, for a lot of reasons. And I'm thinking about moving into 2022, what, as I was praying about what God would have me share this evening, I said, what do we need to hear? What are the, what are the words that we need to hear from from God tonight, and I, I really believe that the Lord laid this message on my heart. You know, I was reading an article in Time Magazine, and it said that America is now officially the most anxious nation in the world, and that every generation for the last three generations is three times more likely to experience depression than the previous generation, that almost one-fifth of people uh, in the U.S. wrestle with anxiety-related issues that Americans have more than doubled their spending on anti-anxiety medication in the last five years, that one in four teenagers struggle with anxiety, that children report the same levels of anxiety of the average adult in the 1950s today. So what is happening in our nation, in our world? What what are the things and, and why is this happening among us? On top of that um, general level of cultural angst, I think all of us uh, feel I think that many of us are experiencing what we would call a, a type of fatigue. I remember um, Tim Keller saying at the beginning of the pandemic, he, he made an observation because he, he has a lot of wisdom from dealing with crisis and leading a church through crisis. And I remember uh, back when the, the shutdown uh, back happened in 2020, a lot of people were asking, how long is this going to last? And at the time, they were asking pastors because, I don't know, they had a special access to God or something, that they would know how long this is going to last, and most of them were wrong. Um, But Keller had a really unique observation. He said, uh, from speaking, experience from speaking in crisis, uh, after 9-11, his experience was that Christians actually do really well when crisis hits, that often they have heroic responses, and they rise up, and they see it as a moment for the church to meet needs, to show compassion, to love people, But he said that oftentimes that missional adrenaline that that comes from the immediacy of a crisis begins to wane. And when that adrenaline wanes, it begins to take a toll on people. And his observation was that about 18 months after 9-11, he experienced a lot of people leave his church as well as leave the city of New York in general. And his theory is that part of that was just the fatigue catching up with them after many years of dealing with a lot of that exhaustion. Now, it's a new year, which is always exciting, um, but I think in a lot of ways, I read an article uh, in The Atlantic that, that mentioned that 2021 and 2020 
had more clergy and pastors resign their positions in the last 10 years combined. Like it was a crazy year for, for people who were in ministry. And I think for a lot of people, you can look at what's happening right now in many of the hospitals where many nurses and doctors are leaving because this exhaustion is starting to catch up with them. And so I think tonight it's a good time maybe for us to check in a little bit and to ask those questions, to ask the question, how are we doing? How are you? Are you tired? Are you excited for the new year? Are you feeling just worn out? Where is the state of your heart, your mind, your soul? Before we dive in, I want to be real clear. Because I'm talking about anxiety and worry a little bit in this passage, I I do believe there is a, a you know, medically diagnosed anxiety and that sometimes that requires medication and, and speaking to doctors. I'm not talking about that anxiety. Okay? I want to be clear. What I'm talking about is sort of the general worry and fear and anxiety that many of us can all relate to on that level. I have a picture here. This is a painting uh, by an artist known as Rembrandt. And it's a very famous painting. Of, it's a, a painting of the boat uh, that's being rocked back and forth where Jesus is taking a nap. And you can't really see it. Um, it's not very clear here. But on the far right side, you'll notice Jesus' head is nodding and looks like he's falling asleep. And what's interesting about a Rembrandt painting is oftentimes he would paint himself into the painting. And in this case, there's a person. You may not be able to see it from where you're, st- where you're sitting. But there's a person dressed in blue who's holding on to the rope. And he's staring straight at the viewer. So if you were to look at this painting, you could see someone looking straight at you. And one of the ways uh, that this piece of art is interpreted is that in this kind of chaotic, crazy, obviously anxiety-inducing situation, it's almost as if the artist is looking straight at you and asking you the question, what would you do in this situation? Or in this situation, how would you feel if you were in our shoes? I would ask us the same question. In the cultural situation that we are in, and in the spaces in which we live and go through our daily lives, how are we doing? I want to talk about how Jesus dealt with worry and anxiety. Because as someone who we talked a few weeks ago was both fully human and fully God, Jesus experienced a full range of human emotions, meaning there were times where he experienced anxiety. Think of the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was sweating blood. That is a telltale time of you are feeling something so extreme that it is having physiological effects on you. And so Jesus, in the midst of that, was able to maintain a profound stability, even though he experienced so much emotion. And I believe part of the reason, one of the main reasons, is because he had the peace of the Father, which he found in private prayer. Tonight I don't want to talk about prayer and why I think it is so important for all of us moving into the new year. We'll start uh, in Mark 135. We have this, uh, a couple of moments where we see this with Jesus. In this passage, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. If Jesus was discipling us today, I believe he would have us set our alarms very early he would wake us up before the sun even rose. And, and, and here he says, went off while it was still dark, which would be hard for me because I am not a morning person. But we also see in Luke 5, 15, that yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. 
But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The key word I want to focus here is it says Jesus often meaning this is not the first time, meaning that many times in his ministry when good things were happening, when he was being productive and healing people and doing miracles, often he would then, instead of keeping that momentum going, withdraw, go to lonely places and pray. We see not just an early morning ritual with Jesus, but we see a rhythm of prayer. In Luke 9, 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter John, James with them, and they went up to a mountain to pray, right? There's an intentionality here. Jesus is leaving and going to a mountain to be in creation, to be able to connect with the Father. In Matthew uh, 14, 22, this is our text for the evening, it said that immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up, and here we assume that he went up alone, a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. So he's praying into the evening. He is withdrawing from his ministry, from speaking and going up into a quiet place to pray alone. We see in Luke 6, 12, one of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Right? This is what's, I think, in a lot of ways a little bit counterintuitive. Right? We live in a culture where self-care and healthy eating regiments and great getting eight to ten hours of sleep is the goal or else you can't function at your highest being of yourself. And yet here's Jesus being like, you know what, sleep, sleep probably matters, but what's more important right now is I connect with God in prayer. And we also know that he wasn't much for bad diets as he spent however many days in the wilderness fasting, okay? Jesus is constantly doing things that for our physical health might seem counterintuitive, but he's doing them for a purpose. And then we have in Matthew 26, verse 36, Jesus went to the disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And if you know where this passage is from, this is moments before he's going to be crucified on a cross, where Jesus, in the midst of his great anxiety, does not want to go to the cross, and he spends time with the Father till eventually his heart is changed, not his circumstance, he's still going to die, but his heart is changed, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. In every season of Jesus' life, he was retreating and withdrawing to most places where he was alone to be with the Father. Now, if we're honest, and maybe this is different for some of you, I'm kind of speaking from my own projection here, but I think we, we don't do this enough. It's, 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 it's sporadic. We may have seasons where we, we spend time in prayer, but rarely do we stop what we were doing, withdraw, and be alone and pray. And I don't think it's because we don't believe in prayer. I think we do believe in it. I think often it's because it's not a rhythm in our life or it's not seen as something that, that we must be doing. Um, I think it falls into the category of something we should do. Like we know we should pray. We know it's something that as a follower of Jesus, I should be doing. But what I would contend tonight is that I don't think that's strong enough. I think it must go from an I should as a follower of Jesus to a I must pray. All of us must pray. We know in a world that is constantly changing and chaos and, and experiencing just the anxiety of living in a fallen and broken world, I believe that prayer must become a part of our rhythms. 
Um, I would describe what we often do, and this, again, is maybe more something that I um, uh, do, is we oftentimes will engage, okay? So we will, we will engage with the world around us, and when we see success, or even if we see failure, we'll continue to push and push and push to the point of exhaustion, and then we'll repeat that process over and over and over again until we find ourselves in a place where we are fatigued and tired. Whereas Jesus shows us a different model. Jesus shows us that when he would engage and things would go well for him, that he would actually withdraw. And he wasn't withdrawing just because he was an introvert and wanted to be alone, right? He was withdrawing because he needed to refill with the peace and overwhelming power that he gained from spending time with the Father. And that allows him to repeat and continue his ministry even in, amidst some great challenges. Engage, withdraw, and refill. There's this leadership book called Failure of Nerve. And in this book, the author talks about something called the window of tolerance. Okay, and I, I have a, the things in the brackets are not from the author. This is sort of my interpretation of this. Um, but we have here at the top what's called hyperarousal. And these are things that have happened in response to crisis. So when we experience stress from external reasons and our circumstances, this is how we oftentimes react. We have hyperarousal, which we could also say is anxiety, right? It's fight or flight. It's an increased reactivity or flashbacks or stress. And we almost are reacting and our adrenaline is running and we, act, we feel this sort of um, heightened uh, sense of the world around us. We have in the middle what I would call a healthy engagement, which is uh, abiding, okay? This is peace. This is a non-anxious presence in the world. We'll talk more about that later. But then we have the other side of the spectrum, which is the hypoarousal. This is apathy. It's an immobilization response. It's a numbing, an, an apathy, depression, shutting down, shame, almost a withdrawing from the world, not in the healthy way, but in a way where we just ignore what's going on. And I think what happens for many of us is in our walk with Jesus, we oftentimes start in a place of healthy engagement. We have a season where we spend time with Jesus and in the word, and we begin uh, in a place that is healthy. But as time goes on, sometimes that can shift. And we can lean. Some of us are more prone to leaning towards anxiety, while some of us are more pr prone towards leaning towards apathy or depression or turning our feelings inward and not dealing with them. And many of us often, this is my, my experience, but I find I'm kind of like a roller coaster. I experience both ends of the spectrum. And I can tell that there, when I'm in seasons of healthy engagement, man, it affects every area of my life. My family, my ministry, like everything that I do is, is a product of whether or not I'm abiding in the presence of God in a healthy rhythm. I think that one of the interesting dynamics for us is that because we live in a culture that is often pushing us to accomplish and to produce and to do things, to see prayer as something that we are to withdraw and to, to almost step away from and participate in almost feels like, why, why would we do that? It's not going to accomplish the end goal. But I believe firmly that God's call for us is that this cannot just be something that we should be doing, but it has to be a must if we're going to see us in the space of abiding. George Muller, uh, he led an orphanage in Bristol. He lived an extraordinary life, fed thousands and thousands of children, 
an incredible man of prayer, he, has, he said this, and I think it's very profound. He said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how I might serve the Lord, but how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. If you know anything about his biography and his life, the man had an immense ministry. He had thousands of people to feed. He, he, he had so many responsibilities and pressures, and yet in the midst of it, he says the most important thing was that I have my inner life nourished. If I don't start my day with that, I'm not going to make it. When Jesus is withdrawing, I think that he was withdrawing to the peace of the Father. And in the same way, he was nourishing his inner being. We see this, um, actually, yeah, John 14, 27. Uh, it says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So when Jesus withdrew to quiet places to pray, he was abiding in that peace and receiving that peace from the Father, that power and that peace that, that transcends understanding. And what this passage says is the peace I leave to you is the peace I give you. It is the peace of the Father. Sometimes I think when we think about prayer, we think about prayer as a means to change our circumstances, which, which sometimes happens. I believe that when we pray for God to do things, like perhaps praying for healing or praying uh, for God to, to change. I, I remember I, I saw online, uh, I was on the news and I saw the wildfires in Boulder and I've got friends who live up there. And I said a prayer in that moment, like, God, please send rain, send Send some sort of natural way to stop those fires from destroying more homes. Sometimes God responds to our prayers, and he does change our circumstances. But I think sometimes the greater miracle that God does that we don't always see is that in the midst of these circumstances, God is actually changing our heart and giving us a peace that allows us to sustain a crisis. And so while sometimes we want him to change uh, so many things about our life, oftentimes what he's doing, he's actually changing us. And that is the miracle that we often miss. This is good news because Jesus says that in the midst of fear and uncertainty, there is a peace that we can have through Christ that allows us to sustain and be resilient in times of crisis. That's why Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. My question for you to think about tonight is I would ask you, do you find yourself operating in a space of peace or do you find yourself operating in a space of cultural anxiety? Um, in my pastoral care class in seminary, one of the things we learned uh, was a term that psychologists use to describe kind of what this piece is. They called it a differentiation, which essentially means you have the stability within yourself to separate yourself from the anxiety of the moment and stand firm. Now, what this does not mean is that you're kind of psychopath who doesn't have emotions and doesn't feel things. What this means is that in the midst of feeling great emotions, right, we don't, we don't allow our emotions to dictate our actions in the midst of difficult situations. I may be angry at someone, 
but in my sanctification, I'm not going to punch them, okay? Or I may be sad and depressed one night, but maybe in, in, in that moment, I'll choose instead of to eat a gallon of ice cream, right? Or maybe I'll take a walk or something. I don't know. Um, what happens often is that when our emotions overwhelm us and they, and they, they certainly are, or we face a crisis or a difficult situation, oftentimes um, it may push us to turn to ways of coping with those feelings that are not healthy. And yet we see this example with Jesus where he experiences emotions and yet in his emotion does not sin. But he would go away to pray and he would come back after praying and being alone with a new sense of identity and self and understanding of mission. And he came back refreshed to do ministry. And all these things we see he talks about were found in what he calls the secret place. Anybody remember that? worship song from like the 90s in the secret yeah it was a, it was a, it was a banger back in the day i don't know if it's aged well uh, but back in the day that one was that was a great one that song is about this the thing that jesus talks about he says my father who is in the secret place what if i told you that there was a secret place that you could go and be without anything getting in the way in the presence of god the unrestricted presence of god because that's the reality that Jesus is trying to convey, that we have unrestricted access to the Father, that we can abide with God, that we can be in his presence, and that when that presence fills us, it can give us a peace that transcends any situation and all understanding. And my, my brain um, functions strangely. I, I, I actually struggle with prayer. This is one that I don't like, I'm preaching to myself tonight. Um, I sometimes have a hard time getting my brain to stop, and I think one of my, the greatest enemy to my prayer life is my cell phone, um, because it's a constant, um, there's, it's always vibrating and, and dinging and telling me I have something I need to do or something else is going on in the world, and it's hard for me to be present in the moment. And actually today, as I was preparing this sermon, um, I procrastinated a little bit this week, it was a, a in-the-clutch sermon, but as I'm preparing, I'm like, I'm like hitting a wall. It's like I'm looking at the time. It's like it's noon. And I've got to get this sermon done. And I just could not. I was hitting a wall. I could not get anywhere. And so I put my phone in my desk, and I went on a walk to the chapel. And I just was able to be quiet for 10 minutes and to listen and to pray. And I think that those 10 minutes were far more productive in my sermon prep than the maybe you know, three-plus hours I spent writing the sermon. It was in that moment that I felt God speak to me with such clarity and speak even into my own heart in that moment and show me mercy and grace that allowed me to then return and finish the job I began. My point is that I think many of us feel like withdrawing is almost counterintuitive to our productivity or to what we're trying to accomplish, but oftentimes the inverse is true, is that when we do that, God is able to use us in ways that we uh, could not do without him. And so I say again as a reminder that when we think about prayer, we can't just think about prayer as something we should do, but we need to think about it as something that we must do. And I think part of the reason we must think about it that way is I think we actually, as Christians, can lose our witness to others. If we live in the world with an anxious presence around people, that when crazy things happen, when our boat is rocked, when we see something on the news that shakes us, if we are responding in erratic and crazy ways to, to everything that changes in our world, I think people pick up on that. And I believe that God has called us 
to have a life where we have this peace. Where through time spent with God that he is changing us and molding us. So when the boat is rocked, we do not lose our minds. I believe Jesus is calling out of that anxious place and into a place of peace. You see this um, oftentimes in the home, right? If parents are anxious about things, you'll see it in their children. You'll see it in a workplace where if it's a toxic work environment, that oftentimes people are walking on eggshells and that there is a, there is a certain anxiety that sort of runs through the, the community. I believe that Jesus is calling us to something different, a place where we operate from a non-anxious presence. So how do we do it? How do we get good at this? How do we get better at prayer? How do we pray? These are all great questions. I, I want to close by talking about what this means in practice. Um, the first thing I'll say is that when we pray, when we withdraw to pray, we don't need to pretend. And what I mean by that is we don't need to be naive to our spiritual reality. right? We come oftentimes into prayer um, with a lot of baggage, right? whether that's, uh, uh, whether that's trauma, uh, stress, the emotions, the the situation you're facing, the, the feelings of depression, whatever it is, we bring all that with us. And if we, if we pretend like we don't have any, any of these things uh, in our life, we're not going to be able to have an honest conversation. Remember, God cannot transform who you're pretending to be. And so if we go into a time to withdraw and pray in a place where we are putting on a front we are doing ourselves a disservice. If you look throughout the scriptures, you see this all the time, right? In the Psalms, the psalmists are crying out to God, sometimes in despair. There's a whole book of the Bible that's called Lamentations. It's a lament, right? There, there are times where God has called us to be honest and brutal and just, this is who I am, because guess what? He already knows. He knows our inmost thoughts, our struggles. And so for us, he's saying, bring it all. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of your mess I'm not afraid of your brokenness. I want all of it. And he calls us to not put on any pretense, but to be honest before him. Philippians 4.6 speaks to this. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts in your minds in Christ Jesus. I think we have a model here for prayer. It says, uh, in every situation, by prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. So for prayer, we find a place. Right? We, find a, we withdraw to be alone. And this isn't just a, being alone for the sake of not being with people, but it is so that we can focus on the presence of God. We find a place to withdraw to be alone with God. And then we petition Right? This is one of the beautiful things is that God calls us to petition, which means to ask him for things. We share the burdens of our heart. We share the ways in which we need God to give us peace over a situation. And we are honest before God. Um, <laughs> my kids, we, we recently drove to Aspen, which is a long drive, especially with little kids. And then their ears are popping and they don't understand. It's confusing. And Within five minutes of getting started on the drive, we get the age-old question, how long before we get there, right? And my grandpa had a method of dealing with this, which I think is brilliant. He would never tell us how many hours it was till we get to our new location. He would tell us by ways of how many more hills there were. So he would say, there's 50 more hills and we'll be there. 
which as a kid, I like tried to count the hills. I didn't realize it was like an arbitrary number. It didn't mean anything. And so uh, I've used this method with my kids where they'd ask, how long? I'd be like, 20 more hills. Like, what does that mean? And it's really confusing. Um, but the whole point is that my kids asked me over and over and over, and I get frustrated when they ask me over and over. I'm an imperfect father. Sometimes I can be impatient. The God that we petition is a perfect father. He does not grow weary in our petitions. He is not surprised. He is not exhausted when we ask him maybe for the same things over and over and over again, but instead he delights in it. And so when we petition God, we don't do it with fear. We do it knowing that he is a merciful and loving God. So we cry out, we petition, we ask him for things. And last, we have this word thanksgiving. I think this is one of the most important ones that we miss. We see this in verse 8. It expands on this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and God of peace will be with you. I think Thanksgiving is powerful because when we show gratitude in our time of prayer, when we show Thanksgiving, we are focusing on these things, pure right, true, admirable, lovely, whatever is excellent in praise. We're reminded of what God has done for us, the moments when God showed up in our life, and it gives us hope and ultimately the peace of God. I'm going to bring it back. As we look at this and just sort of try to take this in, where in your life do you sense that often you may have a tendency to drift to? Do you drift towards feelings of worry and anxiety, worrying about the future, worrying about things you can't control? Or do you find yourself sort of becoming apathetic in times of stress and crisis? Or maybe leaning in towards depression or, or are feelings not being dealt with but turned inward? Or are you in a place where you find that maybe once you were in a healthy engagement and a healthy rhythm, but maybe you're kind of all over the map? We were in uh, Aspen. We drove. It was like 12 hours because my wife was still nursing, our youngest, and we had to stop a bunch. And it was a long, long drive. It was about one in the morning. We finally get to the house we're staying, and it's on the mountain. We're staying with our sister's um, grandparents' house. It's a, it's a beautiful house, but there is a very, very thin road in the mountain to get to this house. It's two degrees outside. There's ice. There's snow. And we're trying to get up this hill in a two-wheel drive van. Like, the tread on these tires is like nothing. It's not going well. And we're driving up this hill, and I'm like, we are so close. And one of the babies is crying, and I'm like, uh, this, is, this is not good. And every time we get halfway up to the house, the van begins to slide. And so I'm like, all right, all right, Betts, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to get out. I'm going to push, Right? And I made the mistake of wearing flip-flops, so I'm wearing flip-flops, and it's cold, it's two degrees. I get out, and I'm starting to push the van while she's driving, and I don't know what I thought I could do, but I was not strong enough to push a van with children and a wife, and I'm trying, and it's not going well, and it's actually getting worse because the van is sliding into the edge. Now, there is no fence. Like, if we were to go over the edge, we're just going to roll. So I'm thinking, like, I don't want 
there to be this horrible tragedy. Uh, we drove all this way. It'd be a terrible ending to vacation. So I, uh, I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop. We're going to take the kids inside, get them to bed, and we'll worry about it in the morning. But I couldn't let it go. I wanted so badly to, like, I don't know if it was my pride or what, I wanted to get this van up the mountain. And so the next day, I spent probably four hours trying to get that van unstuck. I took a shovel, I dug out all the snow around the tires, I laid down salt, I took bath mats and put them on the tires, hoping it would give it a little more grip. Did not work. The bathrooms would just fly out underneath it. I tried everything, and it was so frustrating. It was ruining vacation, and I love vacation. It was very sad. And it's, I, I mean, I, I was so frustrated. And finally, my sister-in-law was like, hey, Matt, maybe we should just call a tow truck. And I'm like, no, I, I can do this, right? Finally, I gave in after many, many, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse. So we called the tow truck, and it took him like five minutes to get it out. And I should have done that in the first place. But I think there's a, a metaphor here. Sometimes in the midst of struggle, what we often can do is tend to dig our heels in, to rely on our own strength and power and skill and whatever it might be when the answer is really calling someone, right? In the midst of it, uh, uh, there's someone who can help us with our struggle because we were not meant to face the chaos and brokenness of this world alone. But instead, we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We were given the gift of the peace of God. And so oftentimes, because of our own pride, we miss that. And it leads us deeper into despair. God is calling us to prayer. Don't dig your heels in. Instead, press in to God. Move and be intentional about building that rhythm of life where we oftentimes stop what we're doing to be alone with God. I want to leave you with this painting. The painting where in the midst of the storm, the ship is being tossed back and forth, the water's coming in the boat. You can imagine the feelings of anxiety that all of them are feeling while Jesus is, is snoozing. And then you see the Rembrandt looking straight at you, asking you the question, how are you feeling in this situation? In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the storm, are you abiding in the peace of Christ? Or are you allowing your circumstances to toss you back and forth and off the ship? I believe that Jesus is calling you to withdraw with him, to be alone, to spend time in prayer, to experience that peace that transcends all understanding. It's a new year, a great time to start maybe practicing these things and new rhythms of our life. So that's my encouragement for you tonight. Let's pray. Father, as we self-reflect and look inward and ask maybe the hard questions, I pray that we would be honest before you, that we'd be honest with ourselves, that as inevitably as we face a new year, we're going to face new challenges in a time of polarization and, and, and uh, sickness and confusing messaging and, and, and uh, political unrest and all the things that we experience in, in this season of life, Lord, I pray that in the midst of all of it, that we would be reminded that as Christians, we have a call to be peacemakers, to be people who uh, help people know that there is a peace so much greater than anything this world can offer. 
and that that peace is available to us, that there's unrestricted access to your presence. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who made that possible, who died on a cross and rose again so that we have a new great high priest. Father, we thank you for all the ways in which you minister to us in the midst of crisis. And I pray that we would remain steadfast with you as our anchor. And as we move forward, that we would lean in to this call to prayer. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.